0: Being categorized as disabled or handicapped can feel like you're moving forward in reverse. I'm your host, Scott Martin. Join me as I talk with my new friends from this underrepresented community about their views of life through their art, poetry, sport, and writing. Hey, life's a road trip. Hop in. Let's turn on some tunes and go. passenger seat managing the radio is Deirdre Fagan. Deirdre is the author of the Living Now Awards winning memoir, Find a Place for Me. In it, she shares the story of losing her husband to ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Deirdre is a 2022 Eric Hoffer Award category finalist and Next Generation Indie Book Award finalist for a collection of short stories known as The Grief Eater poetry chapbook, Have Love, and a reference book titled Critical Companion to Robert Frost. Her creative and academic work is available both in in online and print literary journals, magazines, and anthologies. Her poem, Outside In, was a finalist for the Best of the Net 2018. Stepping Up was nominated for a 2021 Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net Award, and Homesick was nominated for a 2018 Pushcart Prize. Deirdre regularly attends and presents at national and regional conferences, as well as doing workshops, presentations, book readings, signings. Oh, yeah, she's also associate professor at Ferris State University. Hi, Deirdre.
1: Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on.
0: Of course. Uh, I first came across you on LinkedIn, and then I started doing some research and really came to be interested in uh, everything that you were presenting and talking very honestly, about uh, what you have dealt with. But first thing I've got to mention is how's life in the mitten portion of Michigan?
1: Uh, it's currently warmer than it ought to be and earthworms are coming out and robins. Really? Are and so it's a little creepy because, you know, this could affect cherries this year
0: <laughs> oh, wow. um,
1: and some apples, uh, but we are expecting a snowstorm in the next few days. So I was Monday- going to ask
0: you about that. If, yes. if you were to go straight west, cut through the to the center of Wisconsin at, say, uh, Wisconsin Dells and hang a right and drive up about an hour, you'd be where I am. And I was going to ask you, we had a little bit of snow today, but Wednesday night, are you guys looking at, we're looking at 8 to 10?
1: Yeah, we're looking, well, I don't know quite that much. They don't quite know, but we're getting something starting Tuesday night, I believe, oh. and then into Wednesday. And we okay. actually took the Ludington Ferry over to Manitowoc last Okay.
0: Summer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very good. Okay, you've been over. I have to tell you, too, that when I, I saw your last name as Fagan, I immediately thought of Donald Fagan from Steely Dan. But yeah. then I realized his is F-A-G-E-N and yours is A-N. So mm-hmm. I, I would have to say that, you know, going back from the top of the show, if we were on a ro- real road trip, I'd probably say, hey, De- Deirdre, pop in a Steely Dan CD, we please? <laughs> um, hey, just to give the listeners an alert, this episode is meant to tear the Band-Aid off the emotional side of disability. There are no holes barred here. There might be a couple of f bombs or something, but we just want to start with this show, getting in and wrestling with the issues uh, of um, uh, the disabled community. So, again, no holes barred. Um, I just we, we want to get into having uh, Deirdre read some of her work, and I've asked her to be here today and and uh, share with us. Some of her, um, was it a short story? Yes, uh, most of the days of the week, correct. It was a this short one story, is or could you? A
1: prose poem, so. Oh, okay. Has, um, it's sort of the length of a flash fiction. So. Ah, I,
0: that's a new term uh, these days. Yeah. yeah so, so if you would please.
1: Most of the days of the week. On Monday, you make pancakes, pay the bills, clean the floor, wipe down the counters, and begin chopping vegetables for soup. As the knife slices the onion thin, you peel away its outer layer and consider committing seppuku at noon. On Tuesday, you start the crock pot, dust the blinds, rake the leaves, strip the beds, and carry the laundry downstairs. You put the wash on delicate, cold. As you turn to go upstairs to the hum of the washer balancing its own mind, you longingly consider freshly washed, warmed, and crisp sheets tied gracefully around a rafter and your neck. Those beams appear strong. Wednesday, after tucking the kids into bed and starting the dishwasher, you wash your face, brush and flush your teeth, and line every pill bottle in the medicine cabinet up on the bathroom counter before considering what they will find in the morning. Then you carefully place the bottles back in the cupboard, turn out the lights, and climb into bed yourself after checking the breaths of your children. Thursday night, you have a little bit too much to drink, some wine, several beers, rum, and a hot cup of tea. Then you remember something Nietzsche said about thoughts of suicide getting many through a dark night. This week, you've made it three and a half days, but it isn't the weekend yet. You aren't sure if Nietzsche is right, but you know you can't drink the antifreeze. Friday, you go out for groceries and consider high speed, a curve, a tree, or maybe that bridge over there. But you probably wouldn't even be successful and then what a mess you'd make. No one would be there to clean it up, and the kids? Who would make them breakfast? Saturday, you roll over to turn off the alarm, but there isn't one. A blessing. Shortly thereafter, there are kids on top of you, climbing over you, giggling, offering to get you coffee, begging for eggs and bacon, and so you make your way to the kitchen. When the grease in the bacon pan begins to sizzle, you don't imagine dousing yourself in it or starting a grease fire. Instead, you serve up breakfast and sip your coffee, admiring the life you have created, the one still in the making.
0: See, that's the first thing I read about you. So when I'm digging around for guests and I find someone that I'm interested in, you know, I'll, I'll Google up the person's name and then start digging around. And that's the first reading that I came across. And I have to tell you, I just, Grab me to, okay, what's the next thing I can find on this person and and see if there's enough uh, uh, information to really get in and talk about it. But I mean, that right there, Deirdre, is something we've got to talk about. Um, What inspired you? What do you think led you to writing that?
1: So that one was actually written within the first few years after losing my husband, Bob, to ALS. And so uh our kids were 9 and 4 when he died, 8 and 3 when he was diagnosed. Um and we lost him within 10 months from diagnosis. And so I was thrust into you know the grief without him as well as a single mom and you know I was the sole breadwinner and I had so much on my plate. Um And, you know, there were those days that it just seemed impossible to go on and you know, what do we, what do we focus on to help us keep going? What is it that we can, I think, you know, the, the quote about Nietzsche always comes back to me. I love the irony and humor in thoughts of suicide got many through a dark night, right? They make it through the night, but they still think about it. And I think there's honesty in that. I think many, many people think I can't go on. How will I go on? Right. Um, There's the Beckett line. I can't go on. I'll go on. Um, And, and, you know, we just hope that we make it through that dark night because nothing, I think what I've learned more than anything is that everything changes. Everything is always changing. And if we could just hang on through the next change, there is hope and possibility in that. But when we're in our darkest moments, we think we will always be in them. And you know we know that happiness and pure joy is fleeting, but we yeah. um, in dark moments we forget that they are possibly fleeting too. They often are, as
0: because fleeting. when we're in those dark moments, it's it's so deep that that's where it is. But on the flip side, of course, you know we're in our happy times too. That seems like there's you know no top to it, and it's just enduring. So again, that that's that's the first thing I read from you and. And then I went on to to find some other things. And then the next item I found was uh, a series of short stories that you wrote uh, titled The Grief Eater. And I'll read what one reviewer wrote. Uh, There is so much to admire in these deeply human tales confronting grief, death, loneliness and despair. Each compelling and complex character reveals an unexpected grace, reveals comfort where one would never expect to find it. And this gives a reader the courage to face the worst whether you're grieving or celebrating the beauty of this life, these stories will speak to you. Again, Deirdre, that's the second thing I read about you and I had to dig into it more. And right there, I I was set on, I'm going to reach out to this person and see if they come on the show. But now that we're talking about it, we have communicated a little bit by email. We've been able to share some stuff, but it's important for us to share a lot of emotional stuff um, for the show. And that's what I'm trying to do with taking life's a road trip in a little bit new direction, on again, ripping the Band-Aid off, let's let's talk about what the emotions are. Um, What was your inspiration for The Grief Eater?
1: So I think I I will begin um, to answer that question. I just wanna say at the beginning that just like the last uh, poem, the collection uh, as revealed through that review tends to most often end on a hopeful note. And so one of the, I think what has emerged as one of my signature marks is that I go deep, I rip the bandaid off, I reveal a lot. um, And it, you know, I share a lot of emotions, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. But I, I think the signature mark is I frequently return to hope at the end of a poem at the end of a story. Um, And the grief eater, is, and I think that's how I live, you know, so it's um, reflected okay. in my writing. I've I've experienced a lot of um, loss and suffering and challenges. And, you know, what's kept me going is the belief that there's hope and possibility if you can ride out those storms. But, you know, as I mentioned, when I'm in the storms and when I'm in my next storm, I will have to remind myself of what I'm saying right now. I've been saying that too. I happen to be, you know, momentarily in a a respite. (laughs) And so during the respite, I, you know, I'm sharing what I've learned when I was going through storms and I too will be in a storm again. I feel like this is what life is. Um, I have a good friend who said to me a few years ago, I said, you know, I'm on a hill, but there'll be more valleys. I said, life is hills and valleys. And she said, yeah, why did we ever think it was anything but? And I think there's something to that. We're sort of taught in our society that life should be, or is, or ought, you know, it, it ought to be all hills, but that's not a realistic view of what life is. You live long enough, there's a lot of valleys. So in yeah. the Grief Eater, the Grief Eater was born, Yes, asked for my inspiration. It was actually uh, when I turned to creative writing, I you mentioned in my bio that I wrote a reference book to Robert Frost My training and background as an academic is in literary scholarship and my dissertation was Frost Dickinson and Hardy and I spent the first decade as a professor producing more literary analysis criticism scholarship and then um, that book actually came out in 2007. And none of my family members were alive. Um, my birth family members, both of my parents and both of my brothers, I lost um, by the time I was 36. And my my father and my remaining brother died two weeks apart in 2006. So I actually rushed to the publisher to please put a little note. They all they could do at that point was put it on the copyright page mentioning my family members. So when it when I was holding it in my hands, nobody was there to see it, and. I felt very lonely because I had no, uh, my, my siblings had not married or had children. Um, my parents were gone. I, I had never had grandparents on one side and on the other side. They were gone and I hadn't been close to them to begin with. I was really kind of lone. And um, I felt isolated as a griever. There were no resources for the position I found myself in. You often hear adult children say, I'm orphaned, you know, even when they lose their parents and they're, they are themselves 65 or something like that. But I, so I had that, but I, that feeling of, I have no parents, but I also had, I have no siblings. I have none of these people to share my memories or to care or to be there for my children. And so I started to, turned towards creative writing to express the emotions that I was feeling. And at that time I expressed them through fiction. And so the grief eater is an assembly of characters who are all coping with different types of grief, different losses, and in different ways, most of them, what, what your average person might consider peculiar usually in socially unacceptable ways. Um, so they, they act in, I think, what are very honest and true emotional ways, but not uh, socially acceptable ways. And so they go. we follow them on these various journeys. For example, I have a man who, grieving his wife, just starts dialing random numbers, seeing if he can make a connection with someone.
0: That's interesting.
1: Um, I have another character who starts attending funerals of people she does not know because she's seeking a community of grievers but she doesn't really know why she, we, we start to realize that's what she's doing <laughs> that she feels isolated and she wants to be around other people who are grieving but she doesn't know we don't know as we enter the story as readers, um, but it you know you start to see this So that was my impetus was to express some of my own grief through creative writing.
0: I was and gonna say that it's it sounds like I wonder how much of this was truly therapeutic and just allowed you And what was what was maybe inside of you morphing into something. And that's how it came out.
1: Yeah, I, you know, I always wonder how much writing is or is not because, you know, you still have to come back to the emotions you're feeling. But I do think it helps. It helped me to express them for sure. It helped mm-hmm. me to express these emotions. And I went to a lot of self-help books looking for insight, something that would help me. And I found none that really spoke to where I was. It was either giving me information I already knew because I'd already lost, you know, a parent and brother and other, you know, other people before I lost my father and brother, um, or it just wasn't speaking to me. So I found myself going to poems I'd read earlier, stories I'd read earlier, and I think a lot of people go to creative writing, as well as nonfiction self-help, to feel a kind of kinship.
0: So, you know, I love conversations like this when we're, uh, when we're doing the shows. It makes my mind drift off of my notes. Uh, most of the days of the week, that was written before Find a Place for Me, correct? Yes. The Grief Eater was written before Find a Place for Me, correct?
1: Before most of the days of the week and Find a Place for Me. Yes. So, um, yeah, the Grief Eater, while it came out in 2020 as a collection, Oh, many of the stories were born in the late two thousands and early two thousand teens, and that was also when I was segueing into poetry. Um, okay. And I and I wrote more poetry after I lost Bob in two thousand twelve. And I didn't start to find a place for me until twenty eighteen. Seriously, I had written some bits before, but seriously, in twenty eighteen. So I'm just curious,
0: so, it, or it's curious to me that it seemed that there were steps involved. the evolution of you getting to the point of writing find a place for me because i have a feeling that's where you really again rip the band-aid hey folks this is probably a place where people are listening to this in the evening or what the heck even if it's midday maybe we should deirdre what do you have in there is that water i was thinking about (laughs) grabbing a glass of wine because i think that we're we're to that point where i think we could just really get off on tangents and and really discuss some of this stuff i think it's really good I'm learning something about you and maybe about your psyche and how well how humans work and how this stuff really it was uh stepping stones it seems to me uh leading up to you writing find a place for me and there is something you're working on now we'll get to that later but that's where I wanted to uh just seems like everything is fitting in the place for you and how your writing is evolving or how it's maybe not evolving is the right term but how it's stretching your boundaries even further Um,
1: i think that's very insightful i mean i started out you know i wasn't trained as a creative writer i was trained as a literary scholar of course i read like crazy um but i started out in fiction more than poetry and fiction is a safe place right i mean yeah yeah people (laughs) yeah yeah and you can make them do anything so i Do crazy things, you know. So I'm often in situations where I think, right now, wouldn't it be great if I did X? But I won't do X because it's totally <laughs> unacceptable, right? But I can make yeah. these characters do crazy stuff. Well, and then when I segued into poetry, poetry for me is a combination of fiction and nonfiction. It always starts with some emotion or a scene that is true, but I get to manipulate it in fictional ways because Mm. it's poetry so um i would say you get more of the personal from me more of my nonfiction self in my poetry i
0: respect that
1: but when i tell people please don't read this as you know autobiography or memoir Mm. because because i manipulate it so sometimes it's really not me by the end of the poem it doesn't mean that it doesn't start with something authentic um And then obviously moving into memoir is a whole other, you know, you're saying this is true. This is how I recall it. And so absolutely, I had to get comfortable with that. And I was also going through, you know, I went through those losses of my family members. Five years after I lost my father and brother, Bob was diagnosed. So um, I was... You know, when I was calling my friends to first tell them about the diagnosis, they were saying of all the people in all the world that this could happen to. I cannot believe it's happening to you. You've been through a-
0: Oh, because you've been through enough. Okay, because
1: I'd been through enough. They said, "Look, you've already lost your whole family. You're going to lose your husband now too." (laughs) You know, I mean, people were, and I said, "Yeah, I don't want this to happen to anybody or anybody's husband, but why is it happening to mine?" You know, I did, I paid paid my dues in the lost department for you know early forties. I've done, you know, I don't need more right now. Um, But it really, you know, it was happening to Bob. it was happening to both of us. And I obviously couldn't write much at all while he was ill. I did I did start the find a place for me just a little bit of the prologue that I hope to share during the show um, while he was alive. But I really couldn't write while I was taking care of him or in the early, like the first year or so after I lost him. I just I can't write when I'm in the thick of it i you know i started the stories a couple years after my family died i need to be at a place where a i can reflect.
0: distance okay yeah all right let's start going in that direction but first i want us to take about a three second pause here because there might be a place for someone to drop an ad so we're going to do that right now okay all right now let's get into your latest work that's that's out there find a place for me um just to mention to people, all of this stuff is going to be linked up. Go on the Life's a Road Trip website, and there are going to be links to a lot of different things. You know, uh, Deirdre is going to be getting into her book, but she's she's talking about Lou Gehrig's disease, and that might bring uh, some of the people of my age. I'm going to actually put a link on there for if I can find um, Pride of the Yankees with Gary Cooper, the um, story about. Uh, Lou Gehrig, and and I know I can find, and I'll put on there uh, Gehrig's farewell speech that is all linked to this because it started the disease. You know the in the media, and we all came to know it as Lou Gehrig's disease from Lou Gehrig, uh, so people can learn about that. But Deirdre, I'm going to just hand it off to you, and and you roll with what we've talked about on again, folks, no holds barred. Uh, this show is going to start going in a direction where people can be damn it, let's just talk (laughs) and not be afraid to say things and and share things. So Deirdre, it's all yours, kid.
1: Okay, so I'm going to read the prologue. Um, And as I mentioned, this is the only portion of the book that I would say was really written while Bob was right next to me. Um, He was actually inspired to write a book of poetry uh, after he was diagnosed, and he self-published it um, before he died. And so he spent his last month's focused on writing, writing letters for the kids and um, notes and writing his book of poetry. So let me
0: interrupt you for a second here. That's published. Let's it's,
1: yeah, it's published on, you can find it on Amazon.
0: Once you give me the link. Okay. And then I'll put it on. I mean, this isn't going to be included in the show. I don't care. We're, we're just talking here folks. It's for okay. all the listeners, but between the two of us, let's get it to me. And then when I post It'll be on the Life's Road Trip website for your stuff. So anyway, find a place for me.
1: Um, So the prologue is titled Six Months Into the Diagnosis. If you think you aren't going to be smoking when I die, Bob's words trailed off. I immediately thought smoking as in being reduced to a pile of ash, a pile of cremated remains he would be, and I most certainly would be smoking both literally and figuratively, as I burned down. I was already burning down like a lit cigarette. When he did die, I knew I would be sending up smoke signals, hoping someone would see them and somehow rescue me. I didn't know how I could ever survive this, this thing that was happening to us, happening to Bob. Six months into Bob's diagnosis, I broke down and bought a pack of American spirit cigarettes. At least they're not filled with all those additives, I convinced myself. They can't be that bad, right? Two weeks into smoking cigarettes, only at night after the kids had gone to bed. One of my many crises made me say aloud to myself, I deserve a fucking cigarette when I want one, and start smoking in front of the kids. I was still only smoking three to four a day, but sometime mid-afternoon, I'd walk out onto our Queen Anne porch in the sweltering summer heat, usually with an iced coffee also in hand, and light one up. The first time my son Liam saw me, he just stared at me. Age nine, he was more enthralled than disgusted. I looked at him and said, what? He just stared blankly at me, shrugged his shoulders and said, I've just never seen you smoke a cigarette before. My daughter Maeve, aged four on the other hand, before long announced while climbing onto my lap, sweaty from the Midwestern heat. When I grow up, I'm going to smoke cigarettes too. I told her I didn't want her to because they are icky. After a few more days of watching me with curiosity, Maeve announced, I don't like when you go out on the porch to smoke which ignited in me the deep guilt I felt for indulging in the practice in the first place. So the following Thursday, I vowed to my daughter and one of my healthiest friends, Kate, that I would quit the habit only weeks after I'd begun it. But it was now a Tuesday night late in the summer, and I was standing staring at Bob across the living room in the lift chair that had now become his primary residence and giving vocal debate to whether I should buy a pack while I was out. I really want a cigarette, but I probably shouldn't buy any. I decided I would stop, but I want one. I really want one. Bob looked at me as though the answer was obvious, as certain as his diagnosis. Quickly dismissing my concerns about the kids, about my health, he said, I think when you're going out to buy your your husband diapers, you should also be able to buy yourself some fucking cigarettes. I tilted my head to the left and my eyes upward. After some thought, I shrugged my shoulders with a degree of doubt and said, You have a point. Shortly thereafter, I responded, you're right. And that was just it about Bob. He always saw things so clearly, so plainly. He called it whatever it was at the moment, like it was. And he was almost always right. Bob was sitting right next to me when I first began to write this memoir in that recliner lift chair he'd been bound to for months. With the power chair lent by the Muscular Dystrophy Association, he'd become so dependent upon a few feet from his raised legs. It was August 5th, 2012 five days before our 11th wedding anniversary and just over seven months since he had been diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Smoke signals. They signal danger. They request the presence of others. They seek the help of others. They signal life. They signal danger. They signal life. In my life, smoking cigarettes had nearly always signaled danger or been the result of it.
0: you were able to blend humor in there, which I appreciate and I respect the hell out of and also humanity, just plain humanity. So I, I thank you for that.
1: Okay. humor, Humor was a huge part of how we always coped with everything, but even more so when Bob was sick, um,
0: You think he was doing that? Because I remember shit when I would fake stuff. I was in the hospital for five months, four months after I woke up out of the coma. And I know I faked. Oh God, it's not. Wasn't just when I was in the hospital. I fake shit all the time because maybe it's because we're a male. I wonder. You're supposed (laughs) to, yeah. We're supposed to be strong. Bullshit.
1: I think you know. I think for him it was more just. He saw life as absurd and in this moment it seemed even more absurd. And at some point, like, what else can you do? I mean, you could cry or you can laugh. I mean, there isn't a whole lot of you know, I mean, you've gotta find some way to cope. So for for us it was coping, but it was also genuinely funny sometimes. I mean, he uttered some really funny lines while he was. (laughs) You know, and he would get me and I would get Uh, him and we would just laugh until we cried. You're making (laughs) me chuckle. This is great. It was a huge huge relief. In fact, after he was sick and we started doing this, he sent out an email to all of our friends and his family and said, this is how we're going to play this. And so when you come into our house, you're going to hear us joke about things that maybe you're not ready for us to joke about. But get on board, or don't come over yet.
0: Okay. There you doing. go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> oh. Okay. He sounded like he was. He was a cool guy. He <laughs> was a cool guy. Okay. Back to you.
1: Okay, so I'm going to read another section. This is oh, maybe not even a I don't know fifth through into the book. Um, so it's, it's still really early, um, in our experience with, with the diagnosis and, uh, I'm sharing it because I feel like it's really about, uh, making that decision of, of letting people in or not letting them in Mm. into what you're going through in your life. And that could be something as tragic as what we were going through or just your, your daily experiences and struggles, uh, I've developed new philosophies about that, Um, and maybe writing a memoir has helped. (laughs) Uh, You know you have to lay a bear. What can you do? Um, Okay, so when Bob was a freshman in college, there was a time when he felt suicidal. He'd always loved physics and recalled riding his bike to the town library to check out books on physics when in junior high and high school, so he naturally thought that was what he wanted to study. He headed off to Rochester Technical Institute as an 18-year-old and soon found himself miserable, surrounded by people unlike him, drinking a lot of booze and working out instead of attending class. He even skipped a final once to go work out, a story he later humorously told many times to his own students as a tale of what not to do. Bob was failing school and life had no meaning for him, but then he took a philosophy class and suddenly discovered there were others like him who worried about the same things and were interested in talking about all the things he felt were important. He called his father and told him he was going to change his major and get a PhD. He'd never known anyone with a PhD, and he really didn't have any idea what it meant. But he'd asked his philosophy professor how one makes a living in philosophy, and he was told he should get a PhD. So that was what he did. He made that decision at 18, and everything else followed. In many ways, Bob's decisions about his ALS diagnosis followed the same course. Bob said, I'm a philosopher. I came to terms with my own death in my 20s as though that explained everything about the decisions he would make about his illness. And in a way, it did. Bob knew he was going to die, and since he'd come to terms with his own death in his 20s, he was not afraid of death, and he was not going to extend his life and end up like those with late-stage ALS, whom he'd seen on YouTube. He was going to play his hand the way he had played all of his hands. The cards were dealt, and it was time to start playing. My way had always been a bit more meandering, my heart often leading me in directions that my mind knew it shouldn't go, and my educational pursuit consisted of a zigzag of heart, mind, heart, mind. Bob and I, however, were committed to doing this thing, his death, together. I would zigzag more than Bob, and I would be bringing up the rear a bit, but I wasn't going to stop playing. I, too, would play the cards I was dealt, and I had designated Bob the dealer. After Bob and I had told our inner circle the news, it was time to begin telling everyone else. Some might decide they want to keep something as intimate as a terminal diagnosis a secret. But secrets are rarely good. We tend to keep secret what we want to hide. And if we want to hide something, it tends not to be good. And in my experience, the hiding only makes it worse. We keep secrets out of fear, fear of judgment, fear of criticism. But succumbing to such fears rather than facing them also rarely does us any good. We sometimes keep secrets when we are afraid the telling will somehow jinx us. Like when we are pregnant and we aren't sure the baby's going to make it. So we wait until the second trimester to be sure. The thing about this kind of secret, though, is that we often end up bringing more harm to ourselves. By not being open, we offer ourselves no empathy. The thing about shielding ourselves from the pain of sharing that we have had a miscarriage, for example, by not sharing the news of a pregnancy until after we are sure, is that if we do have a miscarriage, no one will have been on the journey of glee and destroyed hopes that we ourselves will have experienced. If a person never knew we were pregnant, how could that same person mourn with us the child we lost? It is only by letting people into our hopes that we can let them into our grief. It is only by letting them into our sorrow that they will feel sorrowful, too. I'm a very private person, and so was Bob, even more so than I. But I knew that without telling, we would live in total darkness, with few pinholes of light. As someone who had to work hard to build support groups, I learned that it is only by letting people in that we can gain support. While Bob and I wanted to go it alone, I knew that not everything we would need to do could be done alone, and that, that the only way anyone could would care to help is if they had an idea of how they could help. I also knew that I would need emotional support, someone to talk to, someone to listen to me. Bob knew this before I did. Bob told me early on, you will need someone to talk to about me. You won't always be able to talk to me about me. How did he know this? I didn't yet. I wouldn't for a while Bob and I told each other everything. The idea that I'd be talking to someone else about him rather than to Bob himself pained me and made me realize the slow separation we were facing. Our opinion was that once you started talking to someone else about your spouse, rather than to your spouse, you were usually headed to trouble. Headed for trouble. Excuse me.
0: The thing you were talking about, it was probably a paragraph on fear. Um, really hit home with me about I'm coming up on 65 and I think I finally got a glimpse of what the hell uh, life is supposed to be all the lies that we were told when we were growing up about this and that and Audie Murphy movies and all this stuff he hit it I think he uh, sounds like he came to grips with something I, I don't know where that comes from maybe that's something we don't know you experience it his partner too.
1: Yeah, he was, I don't know, Bob was a very unusual person. Part of why I wanted to write the book was just to share him with the world because he was, you. you know, he was gone too early and he had a lot more teaching to do to his students and a lot more to share. And what always struck me about him was he really was pretty consistent. If he thought something, he kind of followed the course. And I just don't think that's a typical person. I think most people can think something and feel something completely different, right? But he always seemed to have his emotions aligned with his mind. And I I really thought his profession as a philosopher was kind of through and through. It really guided
0: so much A person that has been coming through my mind as I'm learning more, putting things together about Bob and trying to put a face on him and stuff. I don't know how this sounds, but don't uh, John Lennon. He just Uh. he had an understanding. He didn't bullshit. Just here's the way it is, folks. I I am who I am, and uh, you know, you guys should all get on board with who who you are too. That sounds like Bob to me. You know, from my. It's
1: funny, you know, we're on this road trip, and the Beatles. The Beatles were played over and over when he was sick. That's what Bob wanted to listen to. He listened to the Beatles so much.
0: I Russia. do that. I, I play music when I'm substitute teaching and the kids uh-huh. just love it. And one kid asked me, Hey, can you throw on some Beatles? I said, hang on. I got something for you. I went to Sirius XM and they're right now, they're playing a limited edition Beatles station. And so they were playing some Lennon and um,
1: nice. the guys individually
0: and, and stuff. And the kids nowadays, they get it. They want to go back to those simpler times. Hey, all right. Let's not get off on top. We'll talk about music later, but Okay. You had one more thing you wanted to share with us. we were talking about which, which one of them was going to be. it. A...
1: Yeah. Go so ahead. I th-
0: do something a little different.
1: <laughs> I thought we should end with some humor because, yeah. you know,
0: part yeah. of this
1: book is like I said, I like to end with hope. Um, and actually the book ends with hope in many ways, cool. despite, you know, that we have to say goodbye to Bob, just as I did, you know, the reader goes on that journey with us, but this is one of those respites in the book. Um, but in life, it was just one of our really funny moments while he was sick. And it's titled, the, the chapter is titled Juicing.
0: Well, this um, sounds like it's going to be a good one. <laughs> All
1: right. Go. Um, time crept forward as we absorbed the devastating news. And before we knew it, it was mid-January and school was back in session for me, Bob, and Liam, who was in third grade. We decided to keep Maeve home because Bob wanted to soak up as much time with her as possible. We had to go forward. We needed to get busy living. Bob and I had classes to teach and kids to raise, and we needed to get Bob's health on track with good food because his body was attacking itself. ALS attacks motor neurons in the brain and spinal cord, eventually impacting all voluntary muscle movement. Voluntary muscles are ones we control, muscles we use to do things like lifting our arms or legs, speaking or breathing. Muscles we can't control are ones like our hearts. We can't hold our heartbeats the way we can hold our breath. We had a membership to a big box bulk food place. Bob's folks had given it to us when Liam was born so we could get cheaper formula and diapers. When I got home from work one day that month, there were huge quantities of vegetables all over our kitchen table. Bob was juicing. His dad had gifted us a Breville juicer because our friends had told us juicing was the quickest way to get good nutrients into Bob's body. The juicer was whirring like crazy and Bob was standing there in a pair of cargoes, a tank top and a flannel shirt his usual attire. Hey, what's going on? I said. I'm juicing, he said ecstatically. I can see that, I said, surveying the mess in the kitchen. Giant bag of sweet potatoes, carrots, celery, kale, spinach, peppers. There were so many ingredients and peelings and bags everywhere. There's a video I want you to watch. I left it on the computer in the office, Bob said, shouting over the juicer without skipping a beat. Okay, go watch it. Okay, I laughed because he looked a bit nuts as he kept feeding the machine its vegetables. I'll be right back. Great. He was so enthusiastic that he was almost maniacal. I watched watched the video and it explained what he was doing. Bob had found a woman on YouTube who said she had reversed multiple sclerosis with her diet. He was going to try to reverse this son of a bitch disease with food. I walked back into the kitchen where Bob had a giant pitcher full of juice. It was at least a gallon's worth. The kitchen reeked. Did you juice the onions? Yep. Seriously, you juice the onions? Hell yeah. Oh no, Bob. That's gross. You eat onions. You eat them raw. You can cook them. You don't juice onions. That's going to be disgusting. It's going to take over everything else. Oh shit, it is? he said dumbfounded. Bob could boil pasta and heat stuff. He made mean scrambled eggs because he had the patience to cook them on low, but Bob was no cook. I once had him mash the potatoes and those fresh, delicious babies were mashed so well that by the time I realized how long he'd been mashing, they had turned into those boxed made from potato flakes mashed potatoes dished out in school cafeterias. You've got to be kidding me. Let me smell it. The container was a hulk green, and the smell of onions was overpowering. Yuck, I can't believe you're going to drink that. Bob smelled it. Oh, shit. These spaced out moments were the Bob moments that were unforgettable and delightful. Did you watch the video? He asked. Yes, I get it. It's pretty amazing. It's worth trying. Let's do this thing. Well, I'm not going to waste it. I guess I've got to drink it. Here goes. Bob plugged his nose and began downing the entire jug, taking breaks to shake his head and wince. He managed to drink that entire fucking onion thing. He was going to slow this ALS fucker, as he often referred to it, down, damn it. We were going to fight this damn disease. (laughs) It was so gross, and he drank it. It was like a gallon.
0: (laughs) I I hope the microphone wasn't... I had to turn my head away so I could... I can chuckle off to the side, folks. I have... Oh my God. <laughs> 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 and the whole kitchen Oh. Uh, you know, yeah. you're uh, you're writing. <laughs> I, I was what in business. your kitchen with you. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> he was
1: wise and clueless at the same time. That's when made him love
0: <laughs> like That, that the, you gotta sell that on a t-shirt. He was wise and clueless <laughs> at the same time. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm going to tell that one to Sue. Maybe she'll start to (laughs) say that I am wise and clueless at the same time. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you for the chuckle. Thank you. I'm I'm glad we decided to say, hey, go do something freaking different. That's good. So there's something – you know, when I was researching you, I was like, yeah, 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 again, I, I'm going to pull from here, pull from there, and find all these little bits of information and try to get into who the heck you are and stuff. And I, I signed up for your newsletter, oh. and in there, you stated something you had posted recently on, on Twitter, and I'll read it. When we are hurting, we close off in an attempt to protect ourselves from further hurt. But closing off also cuts off possibilities for happiness and contentment. The way forward is to open to new people and experiences and, and you left it with a hashtag of love forward. Uh, yeah, that was thank you. I, so that's I think that
1: become my slogan, love forward. That's a
0: long slogan, but oh Just love forward. Love okay. okay.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I like that. I've never seen that. So you better go out and get that baby trademarked, you know.
1: I I wonder if people understand it without the context but to me what it means is you have to put love into the world in order to receive it back right and if we close up and we don't put any out people don't see us as receptive to it either so when we're really closed we become unapproachable so
0: is that that's profound but is that yeah. part of growing up? I, I mean
1: yeah, the profound, but yeah, that's that's where I was headed with that was the idea that loving forward means if you open yourself up to all kinds of new experiences with people, mm-hmm. you um there's possibility, right? And there's hope. Yeah. But if you're close if you close when you're hurting, which we do, it's a natural response. Um, but if we stay there, then we can't we can't come out of it. There's, no. n- there's nothing on the other side of that.
0: Maybe that's a benefit. Maybe it's a benefit of going through uh, uh, being disabled in, in some degrees, or I don't know. Not just being disabled, I guess, about life, if we're open to it. But maybe shit has to happen enough to us to a point where we just say, yeah, okay, shit's going to happen. And uh, I, I think you boiled something down. Like shit happens. Uh, you boil some things about life down into combining love forward, you know, with the hashtag. That's really good.
1: I, I um, think something back to the beginning of the show. It's true that, um, you know, when we're younger, we, we just don't know. We don't no. know that there's going to be these hills and valleys. So we go through them. But I think what, what at this point in my life, what helps me get to the other side of any experience is knowing that I, that I can right that it, it's happened before. So even when it seems impossible, it, it, it has seemed impossible before. So in a way, there's there's a takeaway from going through the, you know, what seems impossible.
0: We do learn like some things.
1: discover that impossible on the other side it's still possible. You know, like if you can just open yourself up mentally or physically or emotionally in whatever way, right, to. Yeah. And to me, that's love. You know, it's the love that you put out um it's love to to greet somebody in the hallway with a smile i mean it is
0: and isn't it fun i only want to stay here for a second because i do this as a substitute teacher i'm walking down the hallway and i see someone with the head down it's like good morning and morning it just it's so odd that it stands out but in a good way that people need to hear some stuff
1: Absolutely. We've lost that
0: even more, haven't oh, we? man. Oh, wait. That's another show we're going to – let's not go in there. Oh, my. Hey, I want to go <laughs> – before we start talking about stuff nowadays, politics. Um, you're working on a, your first full-length poetry collection called Phantom Limbs. And it's going to be available for pre-sale – I read next summer, as in this summer, next – yeah, this that's
1: coming summer. So I'm actually, okay. I'm finalizing it. Um, and it's due to the publisher in just a few weeks, actually. And then da, da, um, they'll be working on getting it ready for print. And then it'll be up for pre-sales. It's supposed to launch in September or, or October. And I'll have a, a final date once they have the manuscript and can get it in the timeline. So, you yeah.
0: Very cool. Okay. I want to do something fun that I've... Every show I've been... Uh, doing something at the end of the shows, but I added a little something, a little toy I have now. and We're going to do it now. <laughs> that sounds, that's a, people are going to get annoyed. I don't care. That sound means it's time to shift gears with the road trip roundup. These are going to be five questions I'm going to be throwing at Deirdre about her road tripping experiences. Okay. So question number one, when road tripping, do you tend to do fast food or local diners?
1: I would pick local diners if I could. I like going to the local places in general.
0: I gotta tell you about half of the people I've been interviewing so far do that. And Sue and I have talked about, that's my wife, about when we're gonna be doing rope, I say, hey, we gotta start doing that. I'm picking this up from people, I'm learning. There you go, because you don't know. I mean, you could find some really good stuff, right?
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. And Yelp is helpful. Yelp will help steer you in a good
0: direction. You just taught me something, Professor. Oh, hopefully, I have—I was taking notes today when I was in your class. You <laughs> was in Yelp. I like that. All right. Uh, what's a dream car for a road trip? Could be something you grew up with, you know, sitting in the back seat on, or something you have now, or something you would just like to have for a road trip. Dream car for a road trip.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm so torn. It depends on who's on the road trip. On the one hand, you want a big vehicle so you could possibly sleep in it. And I'm older, so I'd rather sleep in it Um, (laughs) it, it, it than a tent. But, you know, like a Subaru or a a minivan or something like that. On the other hand, be really fun to go in a convertible. I once went in a Jeep with top off and we would just throw on the bikini top like this in the late 90s when it was raining. Um, And that was super fun. But I I don't know now. I I might... hard to sleep in a
0: Jeep, but yeah. Depends again, who you're with and where you're going. you are you going? But the road trip is question number three. I really love this question. Last cassette or CD that played while you're on a road trip.
1: I missed the first part you cut out. of me the, the last, last,
0: last cassette or CD that played while you're on a road trip.
1: Oh, wow. Um, I would say I was probably blasting Queen because I usually am.
0: Oh, <laughs> Queen person. Yeah. Very good. Okay, you got to have good speakers for yeah. Queen because their their sound is so clean. But you've got to be able to experience it that way. Number four, straight up, Coke or Pepsi, one or the other. Oh, their products, is- not just here's a Coke or you know you could be Mountain Dew or knee-high or whatever uh, whatever they produce.
1: It's so funny. I think it depends on what you're eating.
0: Oh, oh I've never heard this part before. Yeah. You've got a point.
1: All right, so. You're slightly different. So maybe you want your Coke with your with fast their, food more. Okay. I don't know. Maybe you want your Pepsi with.
0: Oh, you're talking about just the difference between Coke and Pepsi or Coke Holy folks, she's ripping on the Coke <laughs> product. So at McDonald's, you would get a Coke. But yeah. if you're going to go to Ma Pa restaurant in whatever city, you might then, therefore, Pepsi, please.
1: I feel like Coke cuts salt more. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, no, I feel like I, there's I agree something about like Pepsi yeah. feels a little more syrupy or something. And so is, I feel like yeah. if you're eating something really salty, Coke is where it's at. And uh, maybe the food's a little more—I uh, don't know—saucy, subtle. I don't know. Pepsi. Have right.
0: you tried Coke Zero yet?
1: Not in a long time. I think I tried it when it first no, Coke, Coke I first came. No, Coke Zero.
0: Sue and I were yeah. in Europe in October. They didn't have Diet Coke because we always drink Diet Coke. Coke Zero. Okay. I came home. Beverage drawer now is Coke Zero. I dumped wow. the silver can Diet Coke. I mean, it tastes like Coke It's you bring up a different, an interesting point. Okay. Number four, you go wherever you want to on this. All right. Favorite road trip memory.
1: Oh, <laughs> so I went cross country by myself at 23. Really? Um, and you know, this was 1993. And okay. so there were no cell phones. And she's over 50 just- folks. Yeah, I, I was 23 years old and I, it was 93 and my mother had died um, three months before. And I, I now lived in New York. I returned to New York, my place of my birth. Uh, and she had lived in Arizona. I had spent my summer with her when she um, was dying. And I'd gone back to New York and I decided I was going to go cross country as like a, an independent woman in the world without a mom. So that was it.
0: (laughs) I think that yeah, but that carries me back to what we were talking about earlier with how I view your writings evolved. That seemed to be maybe the early phase of you becoming you. Because that was ballsy. That was bold. And you were probably cranking queen.
1: I was cranking and I was I was singing out loud a lot. And Uh, I don't know. It was just uh I was smoking at the time, so this was one of my smoking periods of life. Okay. When my mom was sick, and so I, I told myself no more than one cigarette an hour. But I was alone, you know. So, I, like when the hour clicked, it's like okay, I get ten minutes with something to do. With car, I'm Twelve hours today, so oh, wow. <laughs> I've got ten minutes of entertainment here. But then I'm back um, But yeah, it's it's memorable being alone in that car and just I just felt really. You know, I'm here and I'm going to survive somehow. And this is part of like proving to myself that I'm going to.
0: You've done that a lot, I think. Um, I think so. And you've taken yourself up on it and you haven't been afraid to do it. And That's where I think different people do different things and that you're not afraid to do it.
1: I think I've been afraid, but I've also known that. Well, another one of my lines is the only way out is through which I guess is another loving forward kind of
0: slogan. I, I like that,
1: yeah. Um, but the, I always say the only way out is through. And so I would. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'll kick and I scream, and then I, right. I do it.
0: Yeah. You got to be able to reflect about yourself. And I think that tells you a lot about yourself. Hey, we're going to wrap it up. And I want us to stay on, but I'm going to click it off in a second for the uh, for the listeners. But you and I stay on, okay? So I'll just say right now, Challenge, relax, everybody, and keep listening. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Check out previous episodes with new ones dropping each Tuesday. If you don't see a synopsis of this show where you're listening, visit our website at lifesaroadtrip.podbean.com for more information on this week's guest. This is your host, Scott Martin, reminding you that Life's A Road Trip